0: You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Crist, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this
1: week's episode.
2: Hello. Welcome to Quarantine Happiness. A conversation on the effects that the COVID pandemic has had on the mental health of one of the world's most influential age group, young adults and teenagers. I'm your host, Matthew Guret. The COVID pandemic affected us all in one form or another. I chose to focus on the mental health aspect to draw more attention to what I believe to be an urgent issue on a state of young minds that will soon lead our nations. I have three very important guests to share with you all today that have observed and analyzed the recent changes seen in young adults and teenagers. Starting with Dr. Emmett Power, researcher at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Emmett, would you like to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, so um, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I work in the public sector in Ireland, uh, as most most kind of doctors do. I applied for like a training, an academic training scheme. Um, well, it would have been in 2018. So we have like a, a health research board and they have occasional uh, grant funding to pay doctor's salaries to like do a phd or do research training in europe more doctors would do their uh, academic training after they've actually like completed their clinical training
2: okay so what led you to writing the article on youth mental health during covid
3: i guess my main uh, research interest is in um, young people the COVID piece what happened was that uh, our lab closed down and uh, I needed to write about something (laughs) (laughs) so I just decided to write an article on COVID in addition we've like we've we've collected data on um, kind of mental health and COVID in terms of severity of mental health problems you know I thought it was timely Um, we we felt that you know the people that would be most impacted by the uh, effects of lockdown would probably be young people, or the, the effects of like COVID mitigation measures would probably be young people. I guess young people are much less affected by, on average, by the actual physical impact of COVID or like being infected with COVID. You know, the outcomes are much, much better for young people, but uh, they're probably disproportionately impacted by the mitigation measures. Of course, that's not a reason not to have lockdown because if you take two. Few measures, and the pandemic gets worse, and the
0: overall burden on the population is worse. Rather than 500 days of summer, we had 500 days of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When things did reopen, schools were definitely prioritized over and above that of, like, the private industry or the
2: service industry, mm-hmm. which is great. So why do you think the mitigation techniques used to control the spread of COVID affected young people so disproportionately? Longitudinal cohort studies in the UK that have looked at representative populations over time, and what they've kind of found is that you know it's probably young women in their early twenties that have the biggest changes in terms of the rates of psychological distress and such. And um, in terms of like the impact of COVID nineteen, um, and again, like attributing causality is, uh, is
3: difficult in in longitudinal studies. But that's where the the greatest stress being in young people and like young people in their 20s. Yes. There's a lot load of, of reasons why you might think that is. So we know from previous recessions, you know, who's impacted most in terms of, like, the labour market and job opportunities in recessions, um, with probably young people again, and the impact of being a young person, and particularly, like, exiting education, particularly for those exiting higher education, as opposed
2: I don't think that has anything to do with the seemingly growing number of people dropping out of college, uh, particularly in the U.S. <laughs> I'm talking about from that perspective. Um, I don't know anything
3: about that here. Is there increased rates of dropouts in the
2: U.S.? Yes, I got that from another article on um, PubMed. Okay. It's particularly young men that are increasingly dropping out. They said over the last 25 years that the proportion of women has actually raised above the proportion of men inside of universities now. So. What do you think the implications of COVID have on that statistic and what specific issues may have caused a decrease in mental health, as you said, within the younger generation? Well, I guess like um, online learning was a bit of an experiment and what are the important factors in uh, feeling like you belong to an organization or a group, are those
3: factors transferable between uh, a distance learning or like working from home to working in person and, like, there's, there's lots of things that, uh, you know, you kind of lose with uh, distance learning. You lose, you know, creating new social networks. And young people value social networks more than adults. <laughs> mm. It's something they're, like, I guess, developmentally primed to do. And, you know, you always uh, think of young people as having sort of, like, the stereotype is that they have a herd mentality. And I guess but that that's true in a way. I would say it's a herd mentality, but young people are, are certainly more, like, Socially aware of what other people might be thinking of them. Um, so, like when, when we think of you know development legally, you know you become an adult at the age of eighteen. But from a biological perspective, perspective of brain development, your development probably finishes maybe in the late mid mid twenties. In terms of cognitive development, socio emotional development, and that actually finishes slightly later for boys and girls as well. But like girls girls have a slight edge on boys already particularly on like you know if, if you have age match cohorts girls develop slightly quicker than boys in terms of like you know the onset of puberty but also in their like socio-emotional cognitive development if you have a group of girls and if you have a group of boys and they're all the same age the girls are gonna have like a slight edge on the boys in terms of like they're, they're, they're probably more mature um, and they probably have more skills to cope with life. But, um, yes, that's probably one of the reasons that education rates or, like, educational attainment has changed in girls' boys. And you're right as well, like, boys do more risky things, they're more impulsive, they have a greater tendency to, like, use uh, substances and alcohol. So, I mean, there's loads of reasons why you'd say that young men and women differ in terms of, like, their uh, educational attainment and social outcomes. Attributing like causal factors to, I guess, new phenomena that we don't fully understand yet. That's another thing as well. We don't really know what the impact of COVID would be in terms of the population, or it'll take many many years to understand. In some of the early studies on like looking at like the part of the overall effects in terms of the whole population, in terms of their psychological well-being. Uh, those effects are actually is, is small. So we'd say like from cross-sectional data like it would be that, that there's a small impact on the overall well-being of the population, but how that effect is spread within subgroups of the population is very different. Some people you know, would have experienced like a, an improvement in their well-being, you know, not mm-hmm. having to commute to work, getting to spend more time with their children, or all these factors are, are moderated by socioeconomic things like, you know, is your housing secure? Did you have a job? Were you able to work from home? Was your house big enough? And like how many people live in your house? Do you have to share residence with other people who might be at risk of getting COVID? So there are lots of different factors that influence different people's experience of the pandemic, and the pandemic definitely, you know, accelerated certain social inequities, particularly in terms of like lower income groups of people who were more likely to have to work in an Uh, industry or in a sector whereby they were more physically at risk or more likely to have risk factors for contracting severe COVID, such as like diabetes, obesity, um, nicotine dependence. So we can make some extrapolations about how COVID affected the population from a psychological perspective. But uh, I think the the overall impacts on the population as a whole have probably been small enough, well, not, not as big as you'd expect. But where those effects are distributed as you know, being in young people
2: and being in people who, you know, have lower income. So you could essentially say it's accelerated pre-existing inequalities. So do you think the mental health consequences from COVID are more long lasting or more prominent than other determinants of mental health, such as socioeconomic status, food security, et cetera, et cetera?
3: Understanding the impact of time is really important when you do epidemiological research and in terms of, you know, we actually don't know what will happen in the future. We can't predict what will happen in the future. And a lot of that depends on normal things that affect mental health in the pre-COVID world, like being able to get a job, feeling socially connected, and all, all those different kinds of things. So I guess one of the things that would be protective for young people would be to get back to, like, in-person learning, you know, having in-person learning again is probably the most important thing in terms of being able to, you know, meet friends, being able to experience normal social milestones, like, I guess we don't have, um, we don't have, I think you call it, do you call do you have, like, a graduation ball?
2: A ceremony, graduation ceremony, that's what we would call it. Oh, yeah, or, like, yeah, so being able to go to, like, graduation ceremonies or, we call them like debutante balls and all those normal kind of markers that, you know, you have finished something
3: and then now you're moving on to the next thing. Whereas during COVID, those normal markers of social transitions just disappeared. Yeah. You know, I guess what I'd also say is that being a young person is, it's very difficult because you, you're not like quite a fully fledged out, you know, you're probably just going out into the world for the first time. You're probably having significant romantic relationships maybe for the first time, getting your first job, moving away from home. All this is happening in the context of, I guess, COVID. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the natural protective factors that you would have had, so like being affiliated with your peers and feeling like you belong somewhere, they've all evaporated. Mm-hmm evaporated, certainly during COVID, because you, you can't really have those things when you're just watching uh, videos of lectures in your
2: bedroom all day, every day, you know? Mm-hmm. So, coming out of the pandemic, um, do you think that mental health will somewhat be thwarted or influenced by the sudden influx of priorities that we now have, such as going to school well, and think, in-person classes? I think a tendency
3: for people to want to grieve for the things that they've lost and um, for the experiences that they missed, and um, I guess when you're like eighteen, nineteen, twenty, it's your perspective about time and you know the novelty of the changes that have happened in your life. Everything seems very important uh, at that time, and it is because you're transitioning through like critical stages in life. Whereas like when you get older, life is more stable and you have more social support systems. To kind of you know, pick you up if you fall down. Where you know, so like when you when you're older, if you like lose a job or something like that, you can you can go and find another job. You know? mm-hmm. uh, but if you drop out of college, that's possibly like more serious, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, getting get, getting a new job is very different to, to having to reapply to college. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of dropping out of college are are much. Higher than consequences of leaving a job or being fired and having to find another job. The longer-term consequences in terms of your health, and your income, and the kind of life you have will have in the future are much greater when you know, there's a you, you experience like a significant shock in when you're a young person, compared to when you're
2: older. Mm-hmm. So wrapping this up, are there any aspects of COVID that you think may potentially improve the mental health of young people? Well, I think there's, there's, there'll be probably like a small decline in substance
3: use that will be like temporary. Uh, I think that's been borne out in some of like the US data and some of our data here. Um, but that's probably it. Um, and like I don't see I don't see those trends continuing beyond COVID. If anything, you know, because of lockdown, maybe perhaps young people are more likely to more aggressively experiment with substances. Um, well, I mean, we can't really predict the future again. Certainly, I do think, like, cannabis marijuana is, is definitely a problem in the U.S. Uh, I'd be very concerned even how some of the research around this issue is funded, and I'd be concerned about, like, the quality and the influence of perhaps some billionaires in, uh, you know, funding very poor quality studies that have appeared in high-ranking journals that, you know, completely disagree with their conclusions and the analysis strategies, and they just seem so counterintuitive to, uh, you know, the actual numbers in the studies that they have, like, totally abused.
2: Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have for you, Dr. Power. Thank you for your time and your words on the youth mental health during COVID.
3: Okay, best of luck. Bye-bye.
2: That was a wonderful conversation I had with Dr. Emmett Power. Again, I just want to say thank you for blessing my podcast with the knowledge that you have. Personally, I think it's interesting to see the increase in substance abuse that Dr. Powers has discussed, and he continues to harp on with other parts of his research. These increases in risky behavior is exactly what my next guest, Caitlin Hancock, your alumni and care coordinator with Florida Healthy Start, observes on a daily basis. Ms. Hancock, would you like to introduce yourself and tell me how you started working for Florida Healthy Start and what exactly is Florida Healthy Start? What do you guys do?
1: So Florida Healthy Start is a government entity. I got into it, honestly, by chance. I was enrolled in Healthy Start myself, being a teenage mother, and it inspired me to want to work with other high-risk mothers and to support them throughout their pregnancies and provide education and support for them.
2: Okay. So out of all the cases, what population do you kind of serve the most?
1: Primarily the population that I serve consists mostly of teenagers. And that's usually between the ages of 13 to 19.
2: Okay. Do you get many mental health focused cases?
1: So it just depends on your location, uh, what type of caseload you're going to be seeing. It just happens that in the county that I work for in Florida, a lot of the women who are becoming pregnant and are higher risk happen to be teenage mothers. But that can change depending on the location that you're servicing. Some people um, have clientele that's mostly older mothers uh, who are getting pregnant over the age of 35 and that makes them high risk. Or um, drug addicted mothers and that's what makes them high risk. So it just depends on wh- what location you're servicing. and what that population needs and what their issues are that makes them high risk.
2: That's understandable. So how has COVID affected your work with the cases personally?
1: I would say that COVID has definitely changed the methodology used to make outreach with our participants and the availability that they have. Schools in general have mainly been not fully operational. So kids are are going to school at home uh, versus having to go to school Monday through Friday. So now they have a lot more flexibility with their schedules. Sometimes people are just doing FLVS instead. Sometimes they have the flexibility to just you know, I can't be in class today, I can't be in the Zoom, can you send me the information? And so they have a lot more flexibility with their schedules to make meetings with you. The only issue is that uh, due to COVID, we can't do, have these meetings, conduct these meetings face-to-face. It's more so connecting with moms over the phone and over social media and over video chat as well. So I would say that it makes the population we serve a lot more accessible.
2: So how do you think those techniques, such as the Zoom calls and distance learning, affects the way teenagers operate and think on a day to day?
1: I don't think that the change in technique has caused mental changes in how they respond to things. I feel like teenagers are typically unresponsive. In high stress situations, just because the neural processing is not fully developed in teenagers. So they don't understand the seriousness of their situations a lot of the time. So even if you're making outreach with them, whether that be at their school, at their doctor's appointments, over the phone, in person, over text message, it doesn't matter. What matters is the perspective that they have on their situation and whether or not teenager is willing to receive assistance.
2: Mm. Are there any changes in mental health that you've seen in your work personally?
1: So I would say that the highest incidence that I'm seeing is just riskier behavior in general, because like I said before, teenagers don't have a fully developed frontal lobe. So their executive processing is just not where it needs to be because they're not fully developed yet. They're still going through puberty. They're still having hormonal changes. You know, a lot happens to the body. Um, during the teenage years and adolescence. So for instance, a study done in Greece found during the COVID pandemic, teenagers have been engaging in riskier behavior, including the use of substances, psychoactive substances, and that definitely contributes to declining mental health and um, also declining executive processing because they are under the influence or exposed to psychoactive substances.
2: Okay. Do you think this has anything to do with the intervention techniques and the mitigation techniques used for the COVID pandemic?
1: Well, you see, I just don't think that the intervention techniques are an additional stressor. I feel like the additional stressor is just limited engagement with the people that they're used to interacting with. So instead of being able to hang out with their friends and go to the mall or hang out and do whatever with their friends, they're now surrounded by their familial unit consisting of their parent's. Maybe it's just a mom, maybe it's just a dad, and possibly siblings or maybe no siblings. So that change in interaction and activity level is probably more of a determinant of risky behavior and the use of psychoactive substance versus the intervention techniques used by professionals.
2: So many studies suggest that social media negatively affects the mental health of young adults and teenagers. How do you think social media played a role during the pandemic in affecting the mental health of this age group?
1: I just want to agree with that statement that social media definitely has a lasting impact on young adults and adolescents, even more so during the COVID-19 pandemic, because... Uh, Most teenagers and young adults are going to be spending a lot more time on their devices, on technology, um, and scrolling through social media. So one thing that is a huge, huge concern regarding the information on social media is how factual that information is. For example, the population that I serve, as I said, previous, typically pregnant teenagers. A lot of them get into that situation because of misinformation um, that they see on the internet and on their social media. They don't think that they will get pregnant if they track their cycles. They also don't have enough information to track their cycles correctly and accurately in order for it to be a protective measure. Certain teenagers that I've interacted with said, "Oh, well, I shouldn't have been I shouldn't have gotten pregnant, I shouldn't have been ovulating, but they don't have enough information to do it accurately and correctly for it to be a form of protection from pregnancy. And then another thing that I've noticed a lot is teenagers just not having enough information at their disposal to make informed decisions about uh, contraceptives and birth control. They'll forego using um, protective barrier methods such as condoms or diaphragms because um, they've heard concerns from people on social media, whether that be a latex allergy, or a diaphragm getting stuck. So that's just a way that social media definitely spreads misinformation and enables teenagers and young adults to pursue a riskier lifestyle, because they don't have the right information, they don't have the full information um, to understand what they're engaging in.
2: Okay, so do you think that specifically those risky behaviors and misinformation from social media contributes to the increased depression, increased anxiety, and increased lower self esteem found in teenagers now?
1: Definitely, because um, young adults, if they're, if they're making these decisions, they have to live with the repercussions of these decisions. And a lot of these decisions have negative outcomes. So if they're getting the wrong information and not realizing that there's going to be a negative outcome, when they do then encounter that negative outcome, they're going to have a lot of anxiety. They're going to feel depressed. They're going to feel stressed out because now they have to face the real life adult consequences for their behaviors that they did not fully understand that would possibly have a negative outcome.
2: Of course. Were there any cases that you specifically dealt with that you've seen maybe a improvement or a worsening of their mental health as the case went on?
1: So in, uh, in this particular instance, one of my teenagers who was trying to be proactive, not get pregnant, but did not want to discuss possibly going on birth control with her family. So she tried to um, utilize apps and, and information she found on social media to begin tracking her periods in an attempt to continue having sexual activity without the possibility of getting pregnant. However, she did end up pregnant because she wasn't tracking her period effectively or accurately. In that situation, when she did find out that she was pregnant, she was very depressed. She did not want to continue her pregnancy. She had no support from the father of the baby and very limited support from her family. Um, when they originally found out that she was pregnant. She still was in high school and very concerned about what her life would be like now that she's pregnant. So I enrolled her in with Healthy Start and I continued to have meetings with her. I'd call her, check in with her, give her advice. We'd go over our curriculum. And over time, she began to accept her pregnancy and her depression eventually declined because she did accept her pregnancy. She accepted her circumstances. And instead of sitting there being sad and upset about her circumstances, she decided to be more proactive and get prepared to become a mother. And she had more support from her family once they all accepted the situation.
2: Wow, that's great to hear. So what do you think the long lasting effects the COVID pandemic will have on the mental health of teens and young adults?
1: More longitudinal studies must be done in order for a determination to be made on the lasting effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, I would like to err on the, the hopeful side of things, and, and I hope that in the future people can learn from the things that took place during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm referring to just making safer decisions, informed decisions, and maybe waiting before they make riskier decisions.
2: So wrapping this up, what can be done to improve teen mental health during these times?
1: The main component that would improve mental health outcomes in teenagers and young adults would be growing up in a supportive household. That is um, the main thing that makes a difference in what types of behaviors you see in young adults and teenagers and their happiness level overall. Typically, young adults and teenagers that are thriving and doing well and have good emotional intelligence come from households that are authoritative. And that just means that they do have structure, but they have support and love and guidance. But it's a definitely structured environment and their parents set boundaries for them, but still show support and love towards their children.
2: That's great. Is there anything you would like to say to close this out?
1: I just want to say thank you for having this discussion with me and giving me the opportunity to shed light on the plight of teenagers and young adults across America. And I also want to encourage anybody listening to this podcast to speak to their young adults and teenagers in their life, whether that be a a younger sibling, a cousin, a family member, a friend, to focus on the important things in life, such as having stability and engaging with their peers, engaging with their family, and just making good decisions.
2: Thank you for your time, Ms. Hancock. I appreciate you coming on the podcast to give us some insight on the behavior seen in young adults and teenagers. Our last guest, Dr. Sarah Carroll, will give us some more insight from her controlled study on twin pairs and their differences in mental health after the pandemic. Dr. Sarah Carroll is a clinical pediatric psychologist at Missouri State University. Dr. Carroll, would you like to introduce yourself and how you ended up conducting research on youth mental health during COVID?
0: Well, so in my, so I'm a graduate student in clinical psychology. And so I do a mix of um, research and clinical work. And most of my um, clinical work is with um, children and adolescents. And so I've been seeing clients virtually since about April of 2020. And so I've really seen firsthand how the pandemics impacted their lives. You know, most of them were doing school from home, at least back in 2020. And so I was able to actually like test that out in my research and see how um, disruptions from the pandemic um, affected kids' mental health. But it was something I've been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic, just in therapy work.
2: Okay, so getting into your study. You stated genetic predispositions to psychopathology or disease in their mental health would increase in the youth in high-risk environments. During your study, how did you see this play out?
0: Well, that was one of the hypotheses, um, but we actually found that that wasn't what happened. It was um, the environmental influences that make kids in the same family less alike became more important in families that were really disrupted by the pandemic
2: so given your study, would you say one's socioeconomic standing would have an impact on their psychopathology or the presence of psychopathology during these times of the pandemic and the mitigation techniques that were used to control the spread of COVID-19?
0: For sure. Um so in our we measured disruption um stemming from the pandemic across several different domains, like work responsibilities, decreased time spent socializing, how isolated the family felt. And also like financial disruptions. So that was one component of it.
2: So how do you think this compares with other countries where socioeconomic standing is not so much of a pinpoint factor, such as Ireland or Norway, where healthcare is available to all?
0: Well, you just don't see the same um, extreme income disparities in, um, in some other countries. I imagine you wouldn't see as many disparities by socioeconomic status in countries where there are those, um, you know, where everyone has access to health care.
2: Okay, well, reading upon your study, you analyzed the presence of psychopathology in twins of the same household. How were you able to find differences or disparities in psychopathology of these twins if they were objectively held in the same environment during a pandemic?
0: So we um, got the parents' reports on their kids' mental health problems, and so the and for the most part, it was the twins' mother who was reporting. And so the mother would report on each twin separately. But it is kind of counterintuitive that that being at home together, um, in quarantine, and in an environment that is objectively shared by both twins, would actually make them less alike. So the idea is that they're responding to the stress at home kind of in their own idiosyncratic ways and um, becoming less alike in their mental health problems throughout the pandemic.
2: So branching off a little bit, how do you think social media played a role in the presence of psychopathology in the youth during the pandemic?
0: Well, I think on the one hand, it could be what I see in my um, adolescent clients is that when they were at home, especially pre-vaccine, um, that was their main way of socializing. So I think without social media and the internet, I, I don't know how they would have had contact with other people their age. But on the other hand, I could see that being another way that uh, kids in the same family could differentiate themselves throughout the pandemic. Like, for example, one kid could be, uh, could maintain contact with friends pretty well on social media and maybe not get as depressed. And where on the other hand, like their twin could not have as active a, a life online and maybe feel more isolated
2: okay well knowing that girls develop faster in regards to emotional control problem solving and critical thinking than boys do how did you see this play out in your study
0: so we found that twins differentiated from one another and their um, conduct problems and emotional symptoms And typically, we see um, higher rates of conduct problems in boys and higher rates of emotional symptoms in girls. So we controlled for the effects of gender and all our sex in all our analyses, uh, since we weren't able to look at that separately. But that's a good point about girls developing sooner than boys. We also controlled for age in the analyses. But it would be really interesting to look at or conduct these same analyses in a a younger sample of girls and see if um, you get the same results in childhood.
2: Mm, That would be a good follow up study. Looking at the age groups that you studied from in this longitudinal study, how do you think the group of 11 to 16 year olds and the group of 17 to 22 year olds will fare further on down the line given the effects of the pandemic and the effects that it has had on their mental health and the psychopathology that may have developed due to the pandemic?
0: Well, for the oldest people in our sample, like the kid, the people who range from eighteen to twenty-two, they may not be living with their um, parents anymore, so they may be less affected by what's going on in their um, family environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we actually ran separate analyses for the kids um, ranging from eleven to seventeen to make sure um, to make sure the results held. It's really hard to say because they're we because we haven't experienced anything like this before. It's hard to say whether. Um, uh, you know, we've seen this, it's pretty well documented now that there has been an increase in um, a lot of different types of mental health problems throughout the pandemic and especially in young people. But at this point, we're about a year and a half into the pandemic, it's really not clear whether these are, are going to be more like transient um, stress responses or whether they're going to p- persist um, in the longer run. I really couldn't say um, what, what effect this would have like five years from now.
2: That makes sense. So how do you think other determinants of youth mental health, such as food security, shelter, socioeconomic status, how do you think factors like those would compare to the factors realized during the pandemic, such as loneliness or, again, the ability to socialize with regards to the presence of psychopathology in the youth?
0: Well, so in our um, questionnaire that we used to assess some um, changes stemming from the pandemic, there were eight scales on the questionnaire that assessed negative changes, like feeling more isolated, uh, more financial stress, more work stress, like having trouble finding childcare. And then there was one scale that we um, didn't include in this study, but it looked at positive changes from the pandemic, like increased time with family, like closer relationships, more leisure time. What we found in our in a different study was that the families, pretty much universally, everyone was experiencing negative effects from the pandemic, but the families that were better off financially and experiencing maybe fewer of those pre-existing stressors had more um, positive changes too. Like, so everyone was impacted negatively, but it was like the the families that were more privileged and had fewer pre-existing stressors were also able to Um, experience, some make um, lemonade out of lemons. Whereas the families who were maybe struggling financially before the pandemic and had all these other stressors, um, I imagine it just exacerbated those stressors. Okay, well,
2: moving on, I feel the period of 18 to 22 is a very pivotal time in a young person's life. Um, You know, graduating from high school, graduating from college, finding a job, getting into meaningful relationships. How do you think the Lack of care services and the lack of people that you could go to and socialize with affected not only their psychopathology, but the development of finding themselves in this period of time in their life.
0: Oh, I don't I definitely don't envy the people who were graduating, either high school or college during a pandemic, because I think it complicated everything. Developmentally, I mean, I think that would have a huge impact just on how people experience emerging adulthood. And kind of going back to what we were talking about before, it's really hard to say what kind of impact that's gonna have in the long run. And hopefully, since we saw the spike um, of mental health symptoms in the, I like guess the pandemic started, hopefully that spike will come down and um, people go more or less back to a healthy baseline, but we just don't know. And we don't know how that'll, you know, how mental health trajectories will look in the long run for people of different age groups. Like there could, possibly younger kids will be more affected in the long run, but we um, we just can't know that yet.
2: Okay. Coming out of the pandemic though, do you think mental health problems could possibly increase or decrease due to the new way of living and the sudden influx of responsibilities and duties that you may have that weren't a part of your life during the pandemic?
0: I'm not sure. I think it, I mean, it would certainly vary from person to person. I could imagine someone like If someone struggles with social anxiety, maybe suddenly being thrust back into in-person schooling um, or in-person work could be a challenge for them. On the other hand, someone who really struggled with loneliness throughout the pandemic um, could really find that it helps their mood and helps them get back to normal to um, be interacting with people every day.
2: Okay, well, getting ready to wrap this up. I know you said people of higher income may have saw positive changes in mental health during the pandemic. Are there any other instances where mental health could have been uh, increased or uh, positively changed during the pandemic? And what are these positive changes that would have occurred?
0: Well, I may be biased because I'm within the mental health field, but what I really hope is that there'll just be more attention to mental health in general. I think to the extent that schools have the resources to do mental health screenings, that would be great. I just hope it's something that people are more aware of. We're all experiencing this like collective trauma. You know, it impacts each person in different ways. And some people have um, been much more impacted than others, but we've all been exposed to this the last year and a half.
2: Branching off of that, what changes would you like to see in the mental health field coming from the perspective of a pediatric clinical psychologist?
0: I think anything we can do to encourage people to talk candidly about mental health is a positive. Ideally, like I would love to see it not be stigmatized for people to say, um, I'm seeing a therapist. I think it should be seen as a basic way to take care of yourself, kind of like going to the doctor or the dentist for a regular checkup. Greater awareness and less stigma. I mean, they go hand in hand.
2: Well, that's all the questions I have for you today, Dr. Carroll. Are there any other things you would like to say about the study or just about the COVID pandemic and mental health in general?
0: I don't think so. It's just been it's been an interesting way to go through grad school. It's not definitely not what I expected. I'm sure it's not yeah. what you expected for college. I mean, I've been amazed at how resilient my clients have been. I mean, I can only imagine how hard it is to be raising several children like in a pandemic.
2: Me and Dr. Carroll got cut off at the end right there, but I just want to say thank you, Dr. Carroll, for your time, and I appreciate your work done in the youth mental health field and your studies that have raised these questions about youth mental health during the pandemic. Hearing the information that each of my guests brought to the table truly highlighted the issue of declining mental health in the youth. The stats and information are clear and pronounced. The minds of our young people are not the same minds of previous generations. It seems like only time could tell what the major effects would be. But as discussed with each of my guests, this is a topic that needs more attention. Again, I want to thank all of you for joining Quarantine Happiness. I've been your host, Matthew Garrett, And remember, you can change your life one day at a time.
0: Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human
1: Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.